Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Kurt, for this week of PBT Extra, I, I noticed that you're not in your normal spot. Family vacation, the last chance to kind of, I think, go away as a family before my daughter goes away to college and, you know, things are going to change. So uh, we are down in, in uh, Baja, California. Um, eating a lot of fish tacos, which are fantastic, uh, and just trying to relax and kind of chill as a family for a few days before. Uh, it's funny. Normally, I was like, when we originally booked this, I'm like, you know, in August, Corey, there's nothing going on in the NBA, and, and that's not really how it turned out to go. So <laughs> it's, it's been a little working vacation, but like, it's it's still been great to just get away. You're, you're taking phone calls, writing articles in Baja. You know, how how does the uh, the fish talk? How do they compare to home? Uh, the, we're, near, we're near Ensenada, which is a, allegedly the birthplace of the fish taco. It was a small fishing village, but it's just, it like, I think it's like a lot of places. The best food is the street food, right? It's just this mm-hmm. raw, like you're going down the street and you're like, the best food we had so far was this taco. We're like, that looks good. And we were kind of hungry for lunch and we went in and they were cooking them fresh right in front of us. And then what they caught that day and put your own salsas on. They made, they're hand making the tortillas right there. And, and, you know, you you, you, all that time you spent in San Antonio, you know, there is nothing like a fresh made tortilla. Is there? No. And you know, this is, this is like, this is a deep cut, by the way, just letting you know, Um, there's a way that you can make tortillas, like as far as serving tortillas, the best way to do it, you just put it on the stove. Do you you just put the tortilla, you heat them up on the stove directly, right? Not in the pan. You kind of put them on the actual fire. Yep. Yeah. That's the best way to do it. And, no, and nothing beats like a breakfast taco with a fresh flour tortilla like that. No, there's a good tortillas. In fact, we we ate in last night and we just had gone to the market near here and bought a dozen, whatever they were, the package of tortillas. And we brought them home. We're like, you can't get stuff this good in American market, man. It's just it's so fresh. But they make them there and you just turn them out. And they were, we did just that. We put them over the flame. They were great. A lot has happened, Kurt, in um the basketball world and I think we should just start by taking a pause and recognizing the giant that was Bill Russell you know and ever since the word um, his legacy was incomparable I mean what Commissioner Silver I mean Commissioner Adam Silver called him the Babe Ruth of basketball basketball's Babe Ruth for being able to transcend time I don't really know much of a better compliment like or a better lead to that but what do you remember about uh, Bill Russell specifically um well, I think there's two things. I think that part of it is, I think, you know, we always talk about the 11 championships and everything he did on the court and all that. That may have sold some of that short a little bit in the sense that 
he really did help change the way basketball was played. It was a, when he entered the league, you were told as a defender, you know, stay down, stay in your position, stay in front of your man, make him shoot over you. And in comes, in comes Russell playing this above the rim, high flying shot blocking, uh, frankly, just more, you know, it was the way the game was being played in black communities as opposed to kind of the very white NBA at the time. And he changed, he starts to change things. He had, he's not alone. Elgin Baylor comes in with his incredibly graceful game, right? And is playing above the rim, but it evolves the NBA really quickly. And Dr. J ends up taking it to another level with the next generation. But like it changes the game on the court to do something much more like we recognize today. And I'm not sure he gets, credit for everything he did there. You know, we talk about the coaching and the championships, but and him being the first black coach and frankly, an American professional sports wins a couple titles that way. Like everything he did, he really just changed how the game was played on the court. And frankly, Corey, that pales in comparison to the off the court stuff. Yeah. And the, um, just to, to kind of harp on that for a second to play that tune, I, I think that's fascinating that like he kind of took basketball from a, a painterly game to a sculptural game in that sense, right? Yeah. 2D to 3D, like adding the vertical, you know, yeah. and like that is a, it's a pretty amazing innovation. And the fact that, and this is the thing that stands out to me too, along those lines is to have the vision to do that. Yeah. You know, it's one thing to have like the talent, but to have the resolve. And I think the resolve element of, of his championship quality, his championship, his championship character to take, not only his team, the Celtics or, you know, San Francisco or, you know, any of the, the Olympic team to gold, not only taking them all the way every single time, uh, but being able to take the rest of us with, with him, you know, like take all the people who follow in his footsteps, like Dr. J, like Michael Jordan, you know, like all the people that we see now and think this is what basketball is. John Morant is a product yeah. of all of these people, right? right? Like we wouldn't have the game today without, without the vision that Bill Russell had at a time in which, Quite like like you said, no one could even conceive of being basketball being played that way. Like that's kind of like painting in new colors, you know. That's a crazy idea for me, um, and and now it's just normal. But he, he that's I think that's the job of a shepherd, and that's the job of a real consummate leader. And then of course, you know, Kurt, you think about team basketball. Is does anyone come to mind that's better than Bill Russell? A guy who's willing to do whatever role. Like, you want me to rebound? I'll rebound. I'll, I'll get 50 rebounds in a game. <laughs> like, one night he could be Dennis Rodman out there getting like, you know, all these rebounds. The next night he could be playing against Wilt Chamberlain. You know, like what? Like the ability that he had to answer the call and then say, okay, now you want me to be a player coach? Yeah. No worries. I'll get a, you know two championships out of three years. It's just unbelievable. And I, you're, like you said, his recognition of like, all right, what we need is rebounding. What we need is defense on the Celtics team because they, man, those, those Celtics teams were stacked with Bob Jones. And Jones and Casey and uh, on and on down the line of all these Hall of Famers. They had scoring. They had plenty of guys who could get buckets. Here was the guy who was going to put the anchor in and change the defense and get the boards and make them a championship team. And, oh, yeah, he'd score plenty, but – that was not the primary focus. And I, by the way, I love your use of the word resolve for him and just his resolve and determination, because doesn't that really show in every aspect of his life, like playing through what he had to kind of endure, even in Boston, where I love uh, Vinnie Goodwill, who's on a rights for Yahoo. He's on a brother from another all the time, had a great line where like Boston loved 
they, he said Boston loved Bill Russell 48 minutes at a time, which I thought was pretty much a perfect explanation for how that city handled him at the time. And, and to be able to do everything he did and have the resolve to play through it was is unbelievable. And I don't know if you saw President Barack Obama's you know comments when when he gave him the Presidential uh, Medal of Freedom. Like those, like that kind of first of all, it's the highest civilian honor <laughs> for your work. Like you said, off the off the court, uh, being able to be recognized as a trophy, to be there for Muhammad Ali during a time when no one else was really you know being afraid perhaps to to support him, it's being on the front line there. Um, I, I think about Bill Russell in. I mean, I have so much respect for him. It, this is the best way I can describe the way that, you know, the NBA family, as far as like players are concerned. Cause remember I grew up around this. Yeah. My dad's a hall of famer. So I grew up around the hall of famers and the legends. There's one consistent thing. And that's every single legend. I don't care who your favorite legend is. You know, I don't care how big they are. They always say, Mr. Russell, <laughs> they always go around <laughs> to him and pay their respects. And that's a whole different level where like everyone in the game, I mean, being around my dad and going to all these events and all the Hall of Fame events, uh, just the gravitas that uh, Mr. Russell had and just the just the gratitude that everyone showed him and the massive respect. And that's what I mean by he was a giant amongst giants. Like that, I mean, to be able to, to command that kind of respect but while also airing such a humility and grace uh, is, is enviable to say the least. And yeah, we're going to miss him. And I, by the way, I think one of my favorite clips we and things we ran at, at NBC that, I, that a lot, I think a lot of people saw around this time involved your dad was the 2017 Lifetime Achievement Award when your dad and Kareem and Shaq are all out on their, you know, honoring Bill Russell's achievements. And they hand him the trophy and he takes it and then he looks, looks up and down and points at each one of them. And just says, I would have kicked your ass. <laughs> just loved that competitiveness at, at 80, whatever he was at the time. Like, just, I love that fire that was still there. And, and I look, you don't get to be, you don't get to be where he was in life without a real sense of competitiveness and a real fire to, to be the best. But I also think that there's this, this element of um, grace, which is the, yeah. which is like the, because sometimes people think, okay, well, you want to, you want to win at all costs. And that's kind of like the scorched earth type of winning. You know, and we see that sometimes, you know, particularly in the NBA where it doesn't matter what I do, like I'm going to get mine. And to think that that's why he was the ultimate team player, because I mean, how many players in the NBA today would say, okay, I'm willing to drop my stats. Like, I don't mind if I, if I don't make an all-star team, or I don't mind if I make that little, you know, intensive in my contract to make another $20 million. Like, I don't care about the amount of money. Like, I just want to win. So if you want me to go to this, you know, play this position or come off the bench, you know, I don't need to start whatever, whatever the team needs, like to that kind of mentality is like the only stat that matters is winning. And then I, I saw this one interview by Tim Duncan. I thought it was hilarious. He's like, also, you have to understand uh, it's underrated, like the, how much you have to hate to lose, <laughs> how much you hate losing. And I think Bill Russell also shared that, like, not only do I want to win, but also I hate losing. But then to, to combine that with that grace of um, making other people feel like they belong. I, I remember this one clip. It's one of my favorite stories about Bill Russell because um, when he was young, and kind of find himself, which is kind of a crazy concept. Could you imagine a young Bill Russell trying to find himself? I feel like he always was so sure of himself. But there was a time, and uh, apparently, uh, Micah, you know, like one of the ultimate, ultimate legends, um, came up to him and 
and said, and just started talking to him. George Mikan just started talking to him as like a, a peer and said, when you get to the league, when you do this and this and this. And Bill Russell was like, that was one of the first times that made me feel like I belonged there, you know? And then, the, then you hear like those, you know, sit down interviews or the way that Tim Duncan talked about Bill Russell or the way that Kobe Bryant talked about Bill Russell, like how he then passed that on, like what George Mikan did for him. He, he passed it on to future Hall of Famers. I think that's what basketball is all about. And that's why he's the consummate champion. I would agree. I don't think there's... Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. I, there's not going to look, I don't think anybody's ever going to win 11 championships again, but I just don't think there's ever going to be anybody quite like him. I, how do you feel about the idea of retiring his jersey, his number six across the league in a, a Jackie Robinson kind of way? Uh, that's interesting. I That's a really interesting idea. It's a, Let's just say it's getting bounced around. I don't know what will come of it. It's too, it's way too early for the NBA to, there's a mourning period. It's way too early to discuss this in a serious way. But I I know Magic Johnson supported it. And I think, I don't, we'll see what happens, but I think that there's at least some momentum towards the idea. Yeah. And, you know, Jackie Robinson was a great hero of Mr. Russell's, you know, uh, and it's just interesting to to see, you know, he was a pallbearer at uh, Mr. Robinson's funeral um, as well. So that's, a, that's an interesting idea. Yeah, I, I think I, 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 my gut reaction on these things is to to be cautious, but I think that there's one person in NBA history who's kind of deserves that because of their transcendent um, impact, not only on the game but on the culture. Like it would be Bill Russell. So. And going into baseball, I know we also um, we just lost Vince Scully legendary broadcaster in right around your neck of the woods in Los Angeles. Uh, how, how do you remember Vince Scully? I, I, I don't know. It's, I, know I, I know there were a lot of tributes out there this morning, and I'm sure there'll be a lot throughout the course of the next couple of days. I don't know, though, how to describe his impact in Los Angeles, especially in a in an era where, like, when I grew up and – you know, I watched the games on television or I listened to the games on the radio, which nobody did, or, you, you know, you didn't know the score sometimes until you saw the paper the next day. His voice was, you know, I think my favorite line is, um, uh, I'm going to go blank on his name, but the creator of The X-Files, the TV show, the two characters were Fox, Fox Mulder and Scully. And he goes, I named it Scully because Scully was the voice of God in L.A. And it kind of was. He was this transcendent thing where he was this gentle passionate voice for the sport but also kind of for the city in some ways and it's it's really hard to describe other than and you'd go to dodger games at the you know when i was growing up and i was watching oral hersheiser and and kirk gibson and all these other and 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 before that even a little bit you'd go to games and people would bring handheld transistor radios to the game, no so Ben Scully describe what they were watching, because he was just that he was that ingrained in the Dodger culture and, and, and in Southern California culture. So it, it, it's a kind of a it's just a sad day. He will be missed. Um, it just his 
yeah, it's really hard to describe how he just kind of was part of the fabric of Los Angeles. There's been a lot of movement, Kurt, in the um, the MLB. We had the trade deadline, and I know this is pro basketball talk, but we have to we have to mention this. I mean, Juan Soto going to the Padres <laughs> for six players, and yeah. and uh, a lot of young talent there it, to join Fernando Tatis Jr. and Manny Machado. Manny Machado, I, I, yeah. I, I can't even you know I, I can't help but draw the parallels um, to the NBA. We saw that Rudy Gobert trade seems similar. We're yeah. looking at another blockbuster trade, um, Kevin Durant, perhaps, <laughs> who yeah. forced his way out, would command something like that of a, a massive pirate ship worth of a haul, just like Soto did. The the target could, it looks like, once again, this is all coulda, woulda, might have, maybe, yeah. rumors, but the Celtics, and get this, Kurt, they might be willing to part with Jalen Brown. Yeah. Is this a good idea? First off, I think what makes the Soto thing so wild is he's 23, right? 23, 25? 23. 23, right? Who's that good, that young, that becomes available, right? Like, it, it, there's not many people that are doing that good, but, like, that becomes available to be signed is is kind of it's, – it's different than Durant in the sense that as good as Durant is, he's 34. And, and it's part of why I think Boston – I, I, in fact, I'll ask you, Corey, because I think this is the core central debate of putting Jalen Brown in this deal. If you put Jalen Brown in, if it's Jalen, which let's just say it's the first offer they made, Jalen Brown, Derek White, a pick or two, a couple first-round picks. If you're Boston, you put that in. If you get that trade, you become not just the favorite, you become the heavy favorite, right? Now you've got Tatum, you've got Smart, you've got, Robert Williams, all these guys, good bench. You, and you add Durant to that. Durant, with, I think, is an upgrade right now today over what Brown can do in terms of scoring. But your window is now, what, two years, maybe three with that group, and you are going to be the team to beat, but for a couple of years. Whereas, Corey, would you prefer having Brown, who you came up with, the fans have this emotional attachment with, and look, you made the finals last year, and your window with Brown and Tatum is what, five years, seven years? Maybe if you, yeah, if you can keep them together. That's, that's the thing is the, the paycheck. And that's, that is like this is a race against time in Boston because who knows? Maybe they're like the Warriors and willing to get into that luxury tax and be able to keep that core together for a decade plus. I mean, it's, it's, it's doable. We've seen it happen in San Antonio, too. You know, they had yeah. Duncan, Tony Parker, and Monte Ginobili for, <laughs> forever, right? right? So you can do it. You can do it. Will the Celtics be willing to do it? That's another. That's another option. Yeah, that's another. That's another discussion. And I think the thing that blows my mind here is that we just watched this movie. Like we just watched it. Kevin Durant left the Warriors to go, you know, be seven eleven with uh, Kyrie Irving in Brooklyn, and then they get James Harden. And what happened though when they got James Harden, they completely depleted their like. Jared Allen had to leave. You know, like all the pieces around them that made Brooklyn very competitive to become that championship competitor all left. Then Joe Harris got injured. And then it was like, yeah, you got three superstars and no one else. Like, you know, and that was one thing that we saw. It's like, man, this Brooklyn went from having one of the best benches in the league to then scrambling and trying to find Patty Mills and trying to wait for Joe Harris to get back. And then and then the, the three people couldn't hold them together. Then James Harden forced his way out. And that was that. So to, to, for the Celtics to revisit this concept and destroy what is one of the deepest teams in the NBA and this young talent where, in my mind, Jalen Brown is the is kind of like the um, the emotional leader of that group. 
because I think Jason Tatum is like the alpha, you know, but I think he's still a little young as far as being able to set the tone like a Steph Curry does. Like we, we go as Steph Curry goes. Like, I don't know if Jalen, uh, sorry, Jason Tatum is there yet just as a leader. Cause he's like, what? He's like, in his early twenties, <laughs> like, he's like, five, you know? So it takes a long time to get there. Um, but for some reason, Jalen Brown has this maturity that I've always admired that I just seem like, it seems like they go as he goes and Marcus Smart, right? Those two guys, but I think Marcus Smart might be number one, but Jalen's I think two. For them to get rid of him to do exactly what happened in Brooklyn with the same cast of characters, I think would be a massive mistake. And especially if they get rid of like Derek White, um, I think it's going to be a repeat. You're actually getting weaker um, there. So in my mind, hold off, keep the course. You're getting close. You're right there. Look, and they got better this offseason. I think the they other thing is that Boston brought in Malcolm Brogdon, like who solved some of their secondary shot creation issues and, de- and depth off the bench and some of the stuff that kind of came up as they got tired of the playoffs. They bring in Danilo Gallinari, who uh, is going to help them a lot in the regular season. How much he helps them. We can debate how much he helps them second round of the playoffs and beyond. But 6'10 guy who can shoot. Like, remember like Bielica for the, uh, for the Warriors. You know, yeah, the same kind of no, no, there's, I, I, I'm with you. I don't think I would do this. I, if it was just Brown and White in the pick, I'd have to think about it because Durant – and I'll tell you, when you talk to coaches and GMs, they lean towards win now. They kind of like, well, yeah, but you get Kevin Durant, you probably get a title in the next two years. I'll take that over what might happen in the future. And I, I, I'm not there. I, I think this team is so good and so close. That I, I'm with you. I wouldn't. I wouldn't break it up. But I and I don't think it's. Look, if they're asking for, the rumor is that they wanted the Nets wanted, Jalen Brown and Marcus Smart and picks. And at that point, I think I think when you get into Marcus Smart, you start really messing with the defensive culture of that team, right? Like yeah. in, in some of their identity in a way that Brown starts to mess with, but two of them. That's like the whole Boston Celtics team that I think at the yeah. current moment, as far as culture-wise, yeah. you can't touch Marcus Smart at all. And then, like I said, Jalen Brown, to think that you would be willing uh, to part with him, I think on one side, it's business. I understand that. And he is, like, if you're talking about a high-level disposable piece, like Jason Tatum is your guy. He's the franchise. Yeah. You can't get rid of him. But, but if you had to think who was expendable at a high level player, like all-star, it wouldn't be Jalen Brown. But I don't think that's a good message you want to send to young people in this league right now where everyone's forcing themselves, they're signing max deals and then forcing themselves out. Like Kevin Durant just signed a max, like he just signed the contract extension. Like he like, just signed the contract extension and then now he requests a trade. So my point is that even if you thought your window was two or three years, that's not true. That's just not true because we've seen this happen over and over and over again where Toronto probably thought their window with Kawhi Leonard was pretty long with Pascal Siakam and all of them and Fred Van Next thing you know, he's out. You know, Houston probably thought. So like, it's the same kind of question over and over again we're seeing in the league is, oh, we got a, we got a nice window until someone signs a massive deal and forces their way out. And I think, I think Toronto was a little more wide-eyed as to what might happen with Kawhi and they were willing to take that risk. I think if you're – that's the concern with – not only Brooklyn, but like if your other teams that get mentioned, Toronto gets mentioned in, in Kevin Durant sweepstakes and, and New Orleans gets mentioned in a Brandon Ingram thing. You have to ask yourself, you have to look at what happened in, in Golden State. You have to look at what happened now in Brooklyn and see those two situations in Brooklyn where they bend over backwards for him and say, hey, if they can't keep him happy, 
if he's there a couple years and wants out, what are we going to do? Like, what's different? Like, I can I can make a great on the court basketball case for New Orleans if you want to, but if he's not going to be happy, what's the point? Yeah, I, I think we're we're talking about this is like the meta aspect. I think we're, the fans are starting to see. Uh, I think just how um, precarious and fickle professional sports are in that ego sense, and and this is where I think the NBA has like clearly gone over into like opera theater. Like I don't know if you've seen the Red Shoes; it's one of my favorite movies. Before Slam on Top, like when you're when you're like the like the proprietor or impresario, when you're like you know the the managing director of like one of those big theaters or Broadway or anything like that, like the diva might just like not want to go on 20 minutes before show. And your job is just to assuage egos. You have some of the most talented people on planet earth. And your job is to like tell the diva, like you're the star, go on and do the show. But then the choreographer is like throwing a fit and then you got to go do that. And then take <laughs> on phone. And you know, the understudy didn't show up and then it's like, Hey, you come from the stands. Like, you know, we, you know, you get your big break. Like this is what we're saw. This is what we're seeing. Like, Basketball has become like a streetwear opera in that sense. And, and I think it's funny because the money is so big, plus like this 24-7 news cycle in the offseason where we're looking at videos of LeBron dunking with his kids at a practice facility. Like that's news now, you know? Like what people are wearing at fashion shows, Carl Anthony Towns at Paris Fashion Week, that's news. Who's dating who? That's news. All these things combined mixed in with this idea that you sign a quarter of a billion, con- a quarter of a billion dollar contract every five years means that you know we're, we're into the the era of divas but what that means too is as a team you got to realize what can a diva do for you and i think that is a really essential question like if you want to be like i always say like a las vegas residency if you want to be broadway and just say hey this a-list movie star who regardless of the quality of team is going to sell it that's like the definition of a movie star regardless of the quality of movie like you will still make a profit so when you think about movie stars in the NBA, it's like LeBron James. It doesn't matter how good the team is. Like if he's on the team, you're turning a profit because home away, people are going to buy the jerseys. They're going to show up. They're going to, you're still going to be on TV. There's only like five, maybe 10 guys, maybe in the entire NBA that hit that movie star box office drop. So if you want to get up, go after one of them and your job is like, you're thinking profit lines and you're thinking that way, go for it. But if you're thinking about winning a championship, what can a diva do for you? And this is my last point on this. I know it's kind of a long, you know, diatribe, but it's important, I think, because no. like, like, Steve, like Steph Curry is a perfect example. Tim Duncan, a perfect example. Those guys define the culture, and it doesn't matter you add or subtract around them. It doesn't the culture doesn't get affected? Same thing with like with, with Steph Curry, but with Kevin Durant, I don't think he's that. And and we saw that in Brooklyn, and then with Boston, Jason Tatum isn't there yet. So if you're going to get rid of everybody and just expect Jason Tatum and Kevin Durant to be that, that's like what we saw Kyrie Irving, who wasn't that, and Kevin Durant, who wasn't that. It's going to be the same type of thing. You need a Steph Curry because Steph can win without Kevin Durant, and he can win with Kevin Durant. Yeah. I'm glad you brought those two guys up because that was the thing I've been thinking was that you need a guy setting the culture who wants to be coached and who who will hold people accountable. Uh, Tim Duncan may have been the ultimate with that. willingness to be coached hard by Popovich and and because he would then everybody else was going to fall in lines I think it's much the same way with Curry even though it's a a looser vibe maybe than a Popovich era team in, in Golden State like the same accountability is there and Draymond's more the voice but Curry sets that tone you're right some of these guys aren't 
either don't set that tone the same way or you set a you can set a Kobe Bryant like tone, but not everybody's going to be comfortable playing in that. Right. Like that. That's a different vibe. And, and, and it's some guys are going to thrive in it and some guys aren't. Um, it's kind of fascinating. I think I'm with you. I'm not, I. The other reason I'm look, I think every one of these teams looking at a Kevin Durant trade, you still and you talk about Jalen Brown. Every time I start to think I'm like, maybe I do that. Maybe I do that. I'm like, 25 for 34. Right, a 25-year-old for a 34-year-old. And I don't know. Yeah, it's, uh, I know. <laughs> I know. And the thing about the whole movie star box office draw, too, is that, like like I said, there's only a handful, maybe five or ten. The crazy thing about this, Kurt, is that those pillars that you're talking about, like the Tim Duncan type of pillars, Steph Curry type of pillars, there's only, like, two or three, like, in the league. So that's what's, so, that's what's even crazier about this. So if you are thinking – um as a team i mean that is just like a it's like i, I think from boston perspective don't look at the shiny object yeah. <laughs> stay focused and keep going but when you were ultimately I, I feel like we, we might be seeing uh not only in this regard but a power shift more generally in the league and i'd love to hear your perspective on i know you're always talking about the mvp odds but I, i'd love to hear what you got from me on the power shifting in the nba well i think it was interesting because we talked about this a little last time and off i Look, the, I put up a post about the odds this week for through our, our partners, NBC partners at PointsBet, about MVP odds. And who are your three favorites? Luka Doncic is number one, and tied for number two are Giannis Antetokounmpo and Joel Embiid. With Jokic, the two-time winner, third, and I get, or I mean fourth. And I get why he's fourth, because, I mean, the last guy to three-peat was Larry Bird 40 years ago. Like, it's it's unlikely I'm not saying he can't do it. It's just that's a that's a mountain to climb. But all four players I just mentioned, they are not American born. They're not like they are. I mean, Embiid came out of uh, Kentucky and America, you know the American system a little bit, but it is a shift in terms of these are guys who came out of systems where team basketball was more first than the kind of individualized basketball that comes through the AAU system. And and maybe that is an impact. And it's, it's, I know it's discussed around the NBA. I mean, I think you've seen it. Yeah. I think what we're seeing here is, is a, the road widening, right? Yeah. So, and, and this is why in the context of our conversation around divas, this is really fascinating. I, I love this comment by Luka Doncic. He was on uh, JJ Reddick's podcast and he's like, yeah, man, I was trying to get Jokic to like, get an Instagram. And he's like, no chance, no chance. <laughs> and, and Luca was trying to explain to JJ, you know, you can make a lot of money doing TikTok and Instagram and Twitter and all this stuff. But like he was saying that Jokic just loves his horses. The guy just loves horses. And he's <laughs> not in the, you know, he's not in the funny videos of him just on horses this summer. So I'm sitting here and I'm like, that's why this dude's the man. And, and I feel like <laughs> we're seeing two different, like, like, a, like a, the divergence though on the elite level. And we're not talking about role players because I think that's a whole different. I'm talking about like the cream of the crop. Who who are the faces of the NBA talent-wise? All those players are European or international players, and, and I think that the way that they operate is just so different than like the superstar diva way that this generation in America operates. Because I think there's like this pre-professional program where it's very much like you know you get discovered by Disney Channel, you know, your child actor, and then you want to go be you know a movie star or whatever. But then you either pan out because the, the hype was too large or, you know, you become some sort of amazing talent. 
I think that this this kind of latent chain in the European system is a good thing, quite frankly, because Jokic was a second round draft pick. Yeah. You know, so like you know, Giannis wasn't top five. You know. Nope. So, so you think about like some of this laden fame, I think is a good thing for these guys um, because I think expectations are a little off. And the fact that Jokic is a back-to-back MVP, which is like a short list. You're talking to guys like LeBron James, like Kareem, yeah. like the <laughs> thing that he could become like Larry Bird. And he's not even, when you think, if you're gonna ask somebody randomly on the NBA, who's like one of the best, best players in the history of the NBA. And if you're thinking about a three-peat of an MVP, I don't know if people would just immediately say, oh, Jokic. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I, I don't know, but I think I think he's got to secure his legacy more in the postseason. And by the way, I think that that can start this year. They're finally healthy with with Jamal Murray and Michael Porter Jr. And and knock on wood, you know, if they're healthy, they're going to be a dangerous team come the playoffs. It's a long time away, but like I think you can start to secure a little more of that. But that's a the European system is just. You know, if you come up as an AAU star, if you're Jason Tatum or John Morant or Devin Booker, and by the time you're 14, the ball is in your hands pretty much every time down the court in an isolation set, right? Like, it, it, you're going into these games, these AAU coaches want to win, your high school coach wants to win, and they know the best way to do that is just to give their best player the ball all the time. And I don't know, you get these the players who come out of the European system where it's a more team-based, a lot more cutting, a lot more ball movement, um, partially because of the way the rules are enforced and the physicality that's allowed, but you get a lot more of that. I think once they translate that to the NBA, you see Jokic is an MVP in part because he's the best passing big man we have ever seen. Like he just, if you cut around Jokic, you will be rewarded, right? If you cut around Doncic, you will be rewarded. Giannis is kind of his own, he is the Greek freak. There's just not another Giannis, but his playmaking skills are better. He's improved. He sets guys up. And it's, I think that broader range sometimes allows you to excel as an individual, but lift your teammates up in a way. I'm not sure. Maybe it just takes longer for a Jason Tatum to learn that. No, I think it's, I think it's actually, this is what happens in my opinion. Okay. Because of that system you described in, in America, and the fact that, by the way, not not like in other countries and stuff, it's it's all connected, like the federation all the way down. So it's a consistent level of coaching because it's run by the same organization. Whereas in the, in the United States, like anyone can start, you know, anyone can have AAU team. Like anyone can like coach a high, you know, these kind of teams. So you're learning all these different styles of coaching by people who may or may not be good coaches. And then by the time you get to college, which you're only, you're only going to spend a semester there, and then you're going to the league, it's a pre-professional program, or you just go straight to the G League. So let's say, for instance, you get 18 years of wildly inconsistent coaching right then you get to the league and you finally meet a master you you get eric spolestra you know you get eric spolstra you get you know coach popovich you get you know like brad stevens coaching you basketball now uh, steve kerr coaching you and they're like wait a second like where are the fundamentals <laughs> where where are all the basic building blocks you have the athletic talent you've been playing off of talent now let's break you down you know and then teach you the fundamentals and then build you back up. The issue is one, the ego point of that. I was a number one draft pick. You know, I was the first round draft pick in the NBA. What I've been doing has brought me this far. I'm a millionaire now. I come from nothing or whatever. Like, what do you mean you want to change my shot? What do you mean I don't know how to play basketball? That is hard enough. And then the second part too is like the fan expectation. We're paying this guy a lot of money. 
and it's going to take you five or seven years to get him back to a place, you know, build, take him down and build him back up. Like, what if he doesn't perform? We're going to trade him. We're going to ask, you know, we're going to come from somebody's head and someone's going to get fired. And I think that's what you see in some of these places where, like, you have great coaching, where people are just, their patience gets, you know, exhausted. You know, people are like, okay, we're not going to wait five years for whatever, Van Gundy to teach these New Orleans Pelicans how to play basketball, you know? Yep. It's I, like, well, I, I think that's why it's one of the reasons I think Kawhi Leonard got to be a success. And I think Jonathan Kuminga is, could be the same kind of thing because he went there, he goes to San Antonio and they can bring him along slowly and take advantage of teaching him how to use that athleticism in a proper way in, in a, in a team game, because we already got Duncan Ginobili and Parker. We're going to win a ton of games. So it doesn't matter. Isn't that sort of where Jonathan Kaminga, and to a degree, Moody is, right? And James Wiseman. And Wiseman. Like, I think that entire team, that's why the Warriors, to me, that's why Andrew Wiggins, that, that's why, in my opinion, he's experienced a revival, a renaissance, because he went through that system of you know top traffic, be the guy. But then as you're trying to unlearn and then relearn, the team is failing. And then it's like, we signed you on this huge contract. Goodbye. Good riddance. Now he had protection and culture. And it's also the thing about culture is that in the sense of protection, it doesn't necessarily matter if you have one or two down seasons. Like remember when Steph broke his hand, because they're like, Kerr isn't going to get fired, you know, after one bad season. Whereas like Vogel won a championship and Frank Vogel won a championship in LA and was fired, you know, like a couple of years later. So it's the fact that there is that stability there. It's okay. Culture is not going to get fired if if Miami, he have a bad season, you know, he's still going to be able to teach Tyler Hero how to play basketball. Stability of culture, I think, I mean, and I think that goes to ownership. It's the ownership, good ownership remains like the greatest secret weapon in pro sports. Like just, but stability of ownership and stability of culture and and style. Like, like you said, the Heat are the Heat. They're going to be the Heat. Um, even and and the Spurs are that way to a degree. Popovich will step away in the next, whenever Popovich wants to step away. But you know, probably in the next few years. Um, but I, you really don't think their culture is changing, right? Like it's not going to – nothing is really shifting for them. Whereas, by the way, just as a counter, you're really seeing a shift in how Utah does things, largely since the Millers gave up ownership and Ryan Smith comes in and buys the team. And it's not necessarily good or bad, but it is definitely a shift in how they're trying to approach things because that started at the top. And I think consistency – over time matters matters so much. He's like, especially if you're not in, look, the Knicks are going to make money regardless because they're the Knicks and the Lakers will make money because they're the Lakers. And I'm not, not to knock those two ownerships in particular, but like if you are in Miami or if you're in Utah or if you're in San Antonio or if you're in Memphis, you need that consistency of organization to make it really work because you can't just, reset the button and, and go get a free agent like some teams can. Now, I want to spend a, the last couple minutes we have, Kurt, talking food. <laughs> uh, culture. You know, like, I think that's one part of the game. We, we understand the theatrical nature of basketball at this point. What about the food? Where are some of your favorite uh, foods that you've had at, at an at arena? Where, where are we going? I, I'd be, I'm curious, too, because you've certainly done a lot of this. I will First off, I have to shout out the Boston Celtics because – and if you go screaming back through their Twitter timeline uh, all the way to the to the uh, playoffs, I think they had it up. I know that uh, NBC Sports Boston did. 
before game three of the NBA finals this year, and, and if anybody you've heard media members or Corey, you've eaten in pregame meals in an arena served to the media, it's chicken or beef. And it's, it's kind of, how should I put this? It's wedding food. It's country club, you know, out of a chafing dish buffet type of food. They had lobster <laughs> from before game three. They had crab. They had this huge ice cream. It was the best pregame spread I've ever seen. So I, I, I got to give, give a shout out to that. But um, I don't know. I think that what I love that's evolved over the last few years, Corey, is rest, a lot of arenas, almost every arena, seems to have gone out into the community and brought in like popular famed chefs or restaurants from that region to open a, a, like a mini satellite and within the arena. So that, you know, if you're in Memphis now, you can actually get like a rendezvous pulled pork sandwich wow. in the FedEx form, which is like their ribs are unbelievable. It's, it's a must go place if you're in Memphis, but you can get some of that in the arena. You know, um, my personal memory, and, and I know in LA, like if I'm feeling fancy that night, the uh, Lula Lefebvre, if kind of, famed French chef. He has a chicken place in Staples Center that does really good chicken for, for, for real food. Like, I'll run up occasionally and get some. So those come out, but then for me, it's always the stuff I'm emotionally attached to. So, like, I don't know about you, Corey. Like, I, I said, we talked about Vince Scully earlier, and I grew up in L.A. There's nothing like a Dodger dog. I will, mm-hmm. I'm will. i going to a Dodger game in a couple of weeks. I will have at least one, if not two, Dodger dogs. <laughs> and my, It's not ideal. It's it's probably not uh, nutritionist approved, but it, you have that emotional attachment to stuff at a ballpark and it, it never change, right? Do you have oh, some yeah. of that? Yeah, I, for me, it's um, hot chocolate at Notre Dame. Because the first time I ever went to Notre Dame, it was like November, it was for a Navy game. It was November, it was so cold. And I was with my dad because we went to watch Navy play. I didn't know much about Notre Dame at the time. And, and I wanted to be a student. I wasn't being recruited or anything. And I had hot chocolate there. So every time I'm back on campus, and you know, like every time I think about football, especially Notre Dame football, I think about my first hot chocolate from the Knights of Columbus little stand at Notre Dame. So that was my my version of the Dodger dog. I also think um, the best sushi, the best um, food I've had around the different NBA arenas, sushi in Sacramento. They had really good sushi oh, there. Yes. Yeah, they do. And then uh, the other one I had that was really good, um, I had some pretzels, like, like sugary pretzels in L.A., Wetzel's pretzels. Oh, Wetzel's pretzels are good. Yeah. And I remember I was like, I think it was for an all-star weekend or something I was there. And I was like, I, I kept going up. Like, it was one of those things where, like, it was interesting with the action I was seeing. But, like, the pretzels were so good. I missed so much of that, that all-star weekend because I was just waiting in <laughs> line to get pretzels. And I was like, man, that's really good pretzels. So those are some of my, my – Yeah. My I, see, I love that the local food stuff, like I said, like, I – last time the all-star game was in New Orleans, I – they gave us, you know, uh, we were able to eat at the uh, arena stands. I had gumbo like three nights in a row sitting there. Like it was really good gumbo, sir. You can get in the arena. I think that happens a lot of places now and it's, we're all a little fatter for it, but maybe <laughs> it's good. It's okay. It's, <laughs> if you want to learn more about what, what Curtin and his amazing team doing on, as far as PBT, go to NBCSports.com slash PBT extra for all the latest news. Kurt, we'll see you next week. I look forward to it, Corey. Take care. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. 
NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25.